Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of the MindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased indeed to welcome to the programme Dr. Piers Robinson, who is a scholar researching and writing on propaganda, media, international politics and conflict. He's currently co-director of the Organisation for Propaganda Studies, convener of the Working Group on Syria, Media and Propaganda, and recently an expert member of Pandemics Data and Analytics, otherwise known as Panda, and indeed editor of uh, the new Propaganda in Focus. He has uh, previously served as Chair Professor of Politics, Society and Political Journalism in the University of Sheffield after holding lectureships in the Universities of Manchester and Liverpool. Dr Robinson, thanks very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Very good to be with you. Well, it's very good to be speaking with you. Now, we had some difficulty arranging this for various reasons, but it is great to be chatting now because uh, many times over the years I have enjoyed reading your articles, benefited from reading them and listening to your interviews, various matters. Um, And I appreciate very much your scholarly approach, which is yet a courageous approach. So, you know, it is a privilege to be speaking with you. And today we're going to be talking about one such article of yours, which you've published fairly recently. I think it was in March. And I think that's a very important article for for reasons which will hopefully become apparent during our conversation, uh, which you called Cock Up or Conspiracy? Understanding COVID-19 as a structural deep event, which throws up the question straight away, what do you mean by a structural deep event? But I'll come to that in a second. Now, on the face of it, judging by that title, it might seem for anybody who's not read this, that you're reaching conclusions, you know, as to whether this whole pandemic, you know, was it a massive cock up? Was it about vested interests? Was it about some overarching conspiracy or network of conspiracies? You know, as if you've got the answers here, but that's not what this article does. So could you tell us what this article actually does and what you hope to achieve by it? Well, first of all, the, the article works on a wider assumption, which I think is very valid. And that assumption is that after two and a half years of us living through the COVID-19 event, that certain things have become reasonably well established. And those things are that the virus and the harm it has caused has been exaggerated in very significant ways. Also, that the policies that have been implemented during COVID-19, such as lockdown, and also the drive towards mass injections of the entire of entire populations, all of these have very limited scientific backing. And so the question which arises, you you have a a huge global response to um, a virus and you have an exaggeration of fear levels. You have an exaggeration of the threat posed by that virus. You then have measures being implemented, such as lockdown, bulk injection, which don't make any scientific sense or which can't be supported scientifically. You're then left after a certain period of time of then addressing the question, okay, well, why has this occurred? Is this a series of mistakes that have been made by people in powerful positions whereby they have overreacted to the virus? 
and implemented measures which were extreme and and ill-founded, but they were doing so primarily because they were panicking? Or is it the case that we need to start to look for deeper level understandings or explanations of what has been happening over the last two and a half years? So assuming assuming that, that we are correct and, and the scientists, for example, the people attached to Panda and many other scientists are correct in terms of the, the, the overplaying of the danger of the virus plus the lack of sense behind policies such as, such as lockdown and bulk injection. You accept that, then you have those questions posed. Have they made a big mistake or is there something else going on? And what the article tries to do is to then set out the grounds for taking seriously the idea that there is more than simply cock-up going on in relation to COVID-19, that there are drivers, and they might be political, economic, or sociological, which have been shaping the response and which actually start to explain what we've been seeing. Mm. And so that's what the article is trying to do, is trying to be very objective about what do we know for sure? Mm. And so it is couched in terms of setting out the reasons for basically exploring the idea that there are um, other drivers in relation to the COVID-19 event, that it's not really a primarily a response to a public health crisis, yeah. and to then, then set that out as a basis for further research and to mm. try and sort of alert the readers and to the public that, okay, it looks like we have something else going on here. For those of you who haven't realized that yet, of course, a lot of people have realized that there are other things going on, but a lot of people haven't, um, to really reach that audience and say, look, you don't have to be um, scared of, or you shouldn't be ashamed of people who might accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist or, or whatever. Huh. So there are very good grounds yeah. for, for raising these questions now. And after such a length of time, right, you know, this is, we're a long way into this now. Um, and a lot of information has now come to light about the early stages and so on. Um, and yet the COVID-19 agenda continues to roll on. It's mm. slightly in the background at the moment but it's i'm sure it will come back into into full view fairly soon yeah it's very interesting you bring up this term conspiracy theorist i, I knew you were going to mention it <laughs> um <laughs> so i mean obviously this is often spoken with regard to journalism isn't it as a way of you know shutting people down from actually tackling serious issues um presumably it's also a great fear amongst academics and that's what you're trying to break through with this article Yes, conspiracy theory is a term which has been used for a long time to shut down people questioning power. And, and there's a very useful literature on that. There's a very good article by uh, Dr. Richard Ellifritz on the use of the conspiracy label in our new journal, Propaganda and Focus, where he talks the audience through how this term, how problematic it is, and how it gets applied essentially to any issues which challenge power. Mm. And it's used to, obviously, with the associations it has with the sort of crazy tinfoil hat, etc. Yeah. And it's very, very effective at, at mm. shutting people down. And of course, academics whose titles are, are precious and obtained through tremendous hard work and jumping through the hoops, etc., yeah. are terrified of, of being having that a label mm. attached to them. Well, not all of them, but, but many of them are. And so it's a, it's a powerful disciplining effect. So as soon as you ask questions which are, are you know questioning, okay, are there political processes going on here which might involve corruption, 
knowing deception or might there just be broader ideological processes at play here which are shaping how people are acting you throw in the well that's a conspiracy theory charge and then people quickly <laughs> shut up and, and, and run in the other direction hmm. so it, it is it is a tool to shut down debate and and what I'm trying to say in the article is that, okay, let's get away from this caricature of a conspiracy theory. We know just a small group of people in a room, <laughs> etc., uh, controlling yeah, sure. everything. And that's not really what we're saying in most of these cases yes, where we're challenging, yes. we're questioning power. We're talking about networks, groups, organizations. Sometimes there is a lot of self-deception within circles, within governments when things are happening. And there's also essentially people buy into particular ideological worldviews. So there's no sort of intentional mm. conspiracy as such. Yes. But at the same time with big political events, you do get strategizing and the kind of thinking of, well, okay, what can we move forward under these conditions, etc. And that's what we really mean by intentional, coordinated exploitation of events to push forward agendas. You can call that a conspiracy if you want, or you can call it something else. But that's really what we're getting at in terms of, or certainly in terms of the article and, and COVID-19. Um, but the important thing is, is that there are political agendas there. And, yeah. and I'll stop in a second. <laughs> the intellectual defense for all of this, obviously, is that we know that powerful groups plan and exploit events. This is something you see throughout the whole of history. <laughs> history is, is, is not a process of political and economic elites sort of bungling through the course of events, not knowing what to do and just getting their way through. They do make concrete plans and they do exploit events. Those sayings, mm. you know, uh, never let a good crisis go to waste and so on. Mm. Um, this is part and parcel of, 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 power, of the exercise of power and political processes. So these things happen. So the question posed by the end of the article is, is this what we have happening here? Do we have powerful actors exploiting, possibly instigating is one mm. possible explanation, but, but primarily exploiting COVID-19 in order to move forward other agendas? That's what we're talking about when we talk about what some people call conspiracy but of course, it's not really the crazy man with sinful happiness. It's not that kind of conspiracy we're talking about there. No. We're talking about a very, what should be familiar to all of us, uh, reality that um, powerful actors draw upon circumstances to push forward agendas. It's happened since the beginning of time <laughs> and, and certainly um, continues to happen to this day. Yeah, okay, so you have these three possible explanations to explore, as you've said about the cock-up. So I think in the article you talk about this being well-intentioned reactions to the virus um, that involved irrational panic by politicians, health experts, etc. Ideological positions in there by people in power, uh, people imitating each other, that that sort of thing as a possible explanation for what went on. Um, but then there's also this idea of vested interests. So you have a narrow interests, business interests particularly, but also political interest not not broad strategies aimed at changing society um, but you know profiteering power seeking that sort of thing self-interest driving policy but then you have this third category of the structural deep event which well i've just noted down here sort of powerful actors taking advantage and you say possibly even instigating this covid19 event to achieve agendas could you say a little bit more about what this structural deep event idea means 
Well, the structural deep event, that, that's a term coined by Peter Dale Scott, an American historian. Mm. And he's written extensively over the years about events such as the JFK assassination. He's written about 9-11 and the global war on terror. Mm. And his point about structural deep events is that this is when you have a major event occurring and you then have a range of actors, both the visible formal official dimensions of our governments, yeah, but then also the, the, the murkier underbelly, the permanent state, the deep state, who then sort of deploy a range of, in, in any, and it varies across these deep events, but employ a range of tactics, including propaganda, including deception, including criminal activity, in order to make sure that the deep event can be exploited in order to push through long-standing changes. So this is where the idea of structural comes into the term, that you're changing okay. major structures in society. You're using an, an event in order to do that. And it's described as a, as a deep event, both in terms of how it can be exploited to create deep, long-standing changes, but also that alludes to this notion of, of deep state involvement. Hmm. And this is the idea that, you know, all government structures, you know, underlying them, and this is an ob objective reality, have, you know, intelligence networks and right. what some people describe as a permanent state, others describe as the deep state. Hmm. Um, and, of course, it was uh, Eisenhower who coined the phrase, the military-industrial complex in the United yeah. States. And he mm. talks about this being uh, essentially uh, becoming a law unto itself. It doesn't have yeah. proper democratic scrutiny and so on. Mm. And so, but these are the power structures in our societies. So it's how these, these power structures utilize events, engaging, you know, using deception and propaganda, but also criminal activity can be associated with that in order to um, achieve broader strategic goals. And I, I guess, the, sorry, did you want to come in next? I was going to give a quick example. No, I just wanted to, on the very simplest level, for people to get their head around this concept, would it be fairly accurate to say that the deep state is everything else when you subtract normal politics, you know, the left and the right, you know, yeah. the Republicans and the Democrats, etc. the show on stage, as it were, if you strip that away, Yes, that, that's perfect. Okay. Yes, mm -hmm. that's the perfect. Is everything beneath the surface? Yeah. And as I say, some people refer to it as permanent state. Others refer to it as deep state, and so on. But these are you know, essentially the, the bureaucracies, the power structures which underlie the kind of formal public uh, mm. side of politics. Sure. Now, but now we're talking about a global dimension to this, aren't we? Yes, there is a global dimension which comes into, which maybe we can talk about in a bit. But mm. sorry, go on. No, I was just uh, thinking that I had reproduced, with permission, a lecture by William Domhoff a few years back. He was talking about the power elite. Of course, he was talking about that in the United States context, particularly. Mm. But when I heard that, it struck me that, you know, if you update that to this globalized world that we have now, much of what he was saying seems to apply <laughs> to the reality now in this sort of deep state sense. But I think a lot of that was to do with wealth and power connected with influential families and modern aristocracy, etc. So presumably that would be part of the concept of the deep state. Yes, I mean, it, it, it could be part of explanations based on using the, the kind of the deep state analysis, yes. I mean, we're talking about any powerful entities who operate within 
these power blocks and, and all of those that you describe almost undoubtedly overlay um, with existing, so as it were, deep state structures um, across states. Okay, so this deep state then would be involved in this explanation, <laughs> one of the three explanations which are put forward in the article for the events that have taken place. So the deep state would be involved in this structural deep event, sort of pushing things in a certain direction. You have in connection with that in your next article, um, the idea of propaganda of the deed, which will be connected with the way in which such a policy or collection of policies might proceed. What is propaganda of the deed? How might we understand what's happened over the last two and a half years as being harnessed in some way to serve a propaganda of the deed? What does it mean? Well, what's meant by that is that people often understand propaganda as, as campaigns, as um, sort of visual language-based persuasion and so on. Mm. And the, the propaganda of the deed just points to this idea that propaganda can also involve actions in the real world and exploiting real-world events. So it's, it's not that you're sort of primarily communicating messages. You're taking an event which can then be used as a catalyzing event in order to effectively sort of propagandize populations and so that's the idea of, of, of the propaganda of the deed is to really communicate this idea that propaganda involves can involve action in the real world mm -hmm. and a very good example of this is the event of 9-11 and it's the way 9-11 was used in order to obviously generate widespread fear over the threat of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism and simultaneously launched a global war on terror and as we know now from documents which came out in the Chilcot Inquiry and also from the testimony of other officials involved, there was a very clear regime change plan that was implemented immediately after 9-11. And that regime change plan was to uh, initiate conflicts of one form or another against multiple countries in the international system. And that was actually nothing to do with fighting terrorism. <laughs> the countries that were being targeted um, in, in the weeks after 9-11 were countries such as Iran, Syria and Libya, which were unconnected and Iraq, unconnected with the alleged Al-Qaeda groups uh, who was allegedly involved in 9-11. Mm. So what you have there is you have an event, you have an event which, you know, can be manipulated and used you sort of strike the fear of god into populations they will this is we need to go have a global war against um al-qaeda and so on and against islamic fundamentalist terrorism and that's what you're telling the public and of course this is what they were doing but then as it were behind the scenes and if you want to call it deep set you can you then have well okay let's see what we can do with this mobilized population what kind of regime change wars can we initiate mm -hmm. under the cover so to speak of the global war on terror yeah. and that's as we know now precisely is the most accurate characterization of the global war on terror and you even have a diplomatic cable um, in the days after 9-11 from the British embassy in, in Washington saying that yes. the regime change folks <laughs> in Washington are arguing that a coalition put together to do one thing, like terrorism, can be used to do other things in the international system. Yes. Um, so it's very, very clear, just from the empirical record now, that, that, that that's what happened. So there you have a very good example of an event, and we won't get into necessarily the questions of who was behind 9-11, no. but you have an event which can be used to mobilize people. 
No, because that, that's irrelevant, isn't it, for this? Well, yeah. it's, it's relevant to the point, yeah. We have looked a lot yeah. about uh, the possible causes of the event, but that, that doesn't matter. The event happened, and then it can be harnessed for other purposes is the point you're making, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. And, and, and that's the question with COVID-19 as presented in the article, oh. this notion of the structural deep event. That it's a, is this an event which has been hard? It doesn't rule out no. questions surrounding origins, instigation, the same with 9-11, the questions of, of which actors were involved in that. And I, I've been very clear for many years now that the official narrative is incorrect. And mm. the question now empirically is, is which actors and, and who were involved. Mm. But that, in a, in a way, is besides the point. The point is, you've got events, you've got real-world events which can be propagandized, essentially, mm. and then used to do things which are very, very different and out, out of the public eye, in, in a sense, um, because of the um, degree of distraction and mobilization of the population in a different direction. So, you know, people mobilize over the threat of alleged threat of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. And then whilst they're mobilized by that, you can start to do wars. And of course, the, the invasion of Iraq was, it was a very clear example of this. The American population conflate, a large section of the American population conflated Saddam Hussein with Al-Qaeda and 9-11. <laughs> In their minds, this was the seed was planted, and and it was it was a major part of pushing the American public to support the invasion of Iraq. It is completely wildly inaccurate that link that was made, but but it worked. It mobilized generation of American young men and women to join up, sign up, and support wars. Mm. Well, I'll come in a moment to some of those agendas that might have been behind such a harnessing of the COVID-19 event. Just just uh, before we get on to that, can I ask you why you don't call it the pandemic? And also, why you don't refer to the so-called vaccines as vaccines? <laughs> well, what I try to do in, in the language I use is not to buy into assumptions which are widely contested. And, and, and I do understand from my mm. scientific colleagues that the question of whether it should be called a vaccine or, or an injection, you know, or it, oh. that it should be called a vaccine is is very much open to dispute. Yes. And so I'll stick with a neutral term in relation to that. Yes. Um, exactly the same concerns are raised about this question of whether what we have been seeing should be described as a pandemic. And yes. I, mean, I think there is the broader backdrop of the redefinition of pandemic, etc. Mm. But more specifically mm. in terms of what we've actually been seeing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to buy into any claims which, you know, are, are questionable. So, okay, if, if there is a debate over whether it's a pandemic or not, and if there's a debate over whether it's a, a vaccine or injection, then I'm going to just stay neutral on this. So I refer to it as an injection because that's what it is. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah. uh, for sure. <laughs> and I will refer to the virus because, well, there are some people who dispute those elements, but I, I'm comfortable with referring to there is a virus, whether it's a novel yes. virus or something, you know, is, is another matter altogether and, and so on. So that's why I use that language. The intention is to avoid buying into problematic or contested terms, which um, which might mean that you're falling into the trap of buying into the propaganda, of course, which has been promoted around it. Yeah. So that's why. Yes, I thought I'd better clear that up because we have frequently been talking about the COVID-19 event. So people might have been wondering about that, but I completely understand that. I think it's a very wise decision, actually. Um, I wanted to ask you then, just to think in rather philosophical terms, just for a moment about this. Um, are you therefore in this piece arguing that there is now, you know, after the experience of the last two and a half years, there is now 
something like warrant for suspecting this COVID-19 event to have been deliberate in some sense. Um, Whereas previously, say early in the COVID-19 event, we might have been justified rationally in suspecting things like this are going on, just because that's logical possibilities. As you said earlier on, conspiracies do happen. But now, with everything that's happened, we have something stronger than that. We do actually have real warrant for these suspicions. And that is what that strength and position is what you are you know, pushing into the public space here to say, look, we have to look at this. We have a great deal of evidence now is an extremely serious situation that we face because it's not all over. <laughs> Who knows what's coming next? I, I think the way you describe it is very accurate. I, I think that there is this idea that at the beginning of these events in March 2020 or, or slightly earlier, one could give them the benefit of the doubt that, okay, mm. you, you have something, there's a, a panic going on, there's um, an overreaction, and they're suddenly locking down, they're deploying extraordinary measures, mm. and, and lockdown is extraordinary, and it's out of tune with previous sort of public health mm. strategies and dealing with viruses. Um, you could forgive them for overreacting. But now, I mean, for some people, of course, right at the start, they raise questions. And, and I did I did write a piece for Off Guardian saying, be careful here, everyone. Right. <laughs> These are the kind of events which get used. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, by a year into it, the point at which I think it was very clear that, for example, many eminent scientists were calling out what was going on and then being censored and suppressed. And that's a warning sign um, that something else is going on. Um, But also the the fact that the data that was coming out, this is what PAN data and analytics were very good on and other organizations showing that, look, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't appear to be that lockdowns work in the way that governments claim. Um, This is something, a a virus which which will become endemic and so on, and people will build up immunity. The, The government reaction is out of tune with the facts mm. and that was becoming you know was, was i think just abundantly clear one by one year into the covid19 event mm. and so then the question becomes okay well the, the, there's still the government sort of forces driving this covid19 narrative are still in place they're still doing this the question is why mm. are they still confused because that's becoming less and less plausible now that they're simply confused and it becomes more and more likely then that there are other factors continuing or pushing this this drive and i think running hand in hand with this of course many people right from the start were pointing out certain things such as well let's look at the world economic forum let's look at the material they're putting out let's look at the way in which they're talking about using covid19 as a way of uh, rebuilding and of course we had the, the build back better uh, <laughs> yes. narrative didn't we oh, yes. um, coming across many of the global leaders mm. and that wasn't even necessarily a, a covert you know that was all very in in the open mm. and so you suddenly yeah. had the WF you suddenly have them talking about restructuring society and over time I mean uh, some people have done quite a lot of work on this I mean there are some notable books in place now one by Ian Davis uh, another by Kate van der Paal, the Dutch political economist, talking about these actors to an extent and the way in which they have been clearly and very visibly working to implement significant um, 
policy initiatives is in one way of describing or, or aspirations, I think is probably more accurate. Mm. So you have this going on. You, you have what can only be described as some very grand political <laughs> visions being promoted extensively by organizations such as the World Economic Forum, but also being parroted by many of the leaders in the West. We saw Trudeau and so on, all of whom, as we now know, have been sort of part or being brought up through the, the, the WEF program. So that's, you know, uh, should raise anybody's eyebrow and think, well, okay, this is very interesting. Is this political actor seeking to use uh, COVID-19 to push forward its agenda? Um, And of course, Klaus Schwab said this himself. He said the pandemic represents a once in a lifetime opportunity to implement changes. So you have that going on. And then another area of analysis has been a point raised by certain a number of economists or at least analysts of the economy talking about the finance crisis in the autumn of 2019. Uh, And this is really to do with the way in which the finance markets have been injected with money to maintain keep them afloat and that these were at a point of crisis again in autumn of 2019 um, a crisis in a sense which had been delayed since the, the last crisis in 2008 with the subprime mortgages um, crisis which emerged but you, you had what can only be described and this is what some economists were warning about of, 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 a, of a profound dysfunctionality of the finance markets and of our economies Mm. And some economists have argued that some of the policies that you see being pushed for through COVID-19, such as the drive towards things like um, mandated injections being connected with digital ID and with the notion of potentially programmable digital currency in the background, this is all starting to look like, is, is this one way of that they're trying to develop to respond to the financial crisis, to respond to the kind of problems that we have across our economies? Hmm. And you know, it wasn't even particularly, uh, again, people were saying publicly, people in very powerful positions <laughs> were saying very publicly that we need to go towards central bank digital currency. This is the way forward. Uh, you have the WEF talking about digitized society. You have the sort of the, the injection vaccine pharma lobby talking about injections as the only solution to COVID-19. That being linked in by organizations such as the Tony Blair Foundation with the notion of digital ID. All of these things going on for real. And these aren't sort of conspiracies in the heads of people. These political actors and economic actors are actually raising these issues and trying to push these issues forward all in the midst of COVID-19 Absolutely. and all in ways which, and this is a point I make in the article, which, which you can start to see how this overlaps with COVID-19 in terms of being able to, to use COVID-19, the fear of the virus, mm. to push people towards things such as mandated injections, digital IDs, and so on. And you know, it's not conclusive, but there's your point that you made several minutes ago. That there is now, there's at least sufficient evidence there of what we can see empirically in front of us of what's been going over the last two years to take seriously the idea that, yep, what we've got here is an event which is attempted to be being used on, 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 a, on a huge global scale in order to usher through major changes. And you also have severe limitations or changes starting to be introduced to our democratic public spheres. We've had lockdowns, we've had restrictions on movement, 
in tandem with that increasing levels of censorship across the West. And so when you add all of this together, you, you can see that, well, when some people warn, look at China, look at the social credit system, look at the way they're using technology to control populations. And this is mm. Case van der Peil's point in his book, um, States of Emergency, that this is really about maintaining control over populations. When you actually have that, and it's happening for real in front of us, mm. <laughs> um, you know, we had sort of essentially segregation in Germany. So you've actually got these things happening. You've got this crumbling of democracy. Um, then I think to not start to seriously consider um, mm. the, mm. the structural deep event, you, you're, you've pretty much got your head in the sand at that point. Yeah, there's one word in there that really jumps out at me, and it did in the article, was the word overlap. So you have the suppression of treatments, you have these injections, and then that leads to the vax passes, and then that almost entails digital ID, and then that facilitates the central bank digital currencies, etc., with the program of money, all, all these conceptually linked and, and overlapping in that way. And it reminds me of one thing that Brett Weinstein has said a number of times, is that if you'd have expected this to be analysable in terms of cock-up, you would expect it to be much more random. Um, I think he's got a good point there. You know, mm. we, he says we seem to have done everything wrong when it comes to the response to the event. In fact, we seem to have done, we, that is, you know, the powers that be, um, have done the inverse of everything we should have. Mm. And you would have expected it to be a smattering of some good things and some bad things, some indifferent things. But what we seem to have is a almost a coordinated bad response, but just turns out to be a good response for these various agendas that you've just been mentioning. And they turn out to be incredibly joined up as well. So I totally agree with you that there really is reason to consider that there's more to this than meets the eye. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I am, although is you know, all researchers come with degrees of baggage and, and, and so on and, uh, and assumptions which can be questioned. But, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to sort of, in, in the article, just be, let, let's be absolutely rigorous and objective about what we can see in front of us and with some colleagues who I've communicated with who want to go entirely into it's a cock-up and so on mm. the argument put forward by Wong was that well there's no capability for this kind of coordination or broad global aspect drive there's no capability for that mm. and then you simply point out but wait a minute but to make that statement you have to ignore in entirety the existence of the world economic forum <laughs> you have to ignore entirely the world health organization and its funding by actors such as bill gates uh, you have to ignore entirely numbers of people in powerful political positions who've gone through the world economic forum <laughs> system to be able to make that statement because the statement's obviously incorrect there obviously is you know powerful actors who operate at the global level and even before that i mean any scholar of international politics w would be able to tell you that well we we have nation states and they have political systems and political structures but there is also layers of global governance is the term used mm. you know you have the united nations other international organizations and they represent and they're real. <laughs> they're not, mm, they're mm, not, not, sure. a, not a conspiracy. It's, 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 not, it's not a figment of a, of a, of a conspiracy theorist's imagination. No, no, they no. exist and they're real and they're powerful and influential. But I suppose you could say they're benign, couldn't you? 
You could say they're benign. You and could just course- say they were set up, a World Health Organization set up to do good, so therefore it must be a benign organization. Therefore, everything must be explained by incompetence and stupidity, etc. Uh, absolutely. Certainly set up to do good in the United Nations as well. But as we know, as any political scientist worth his or her salt should know that um, powerful institutions can become corrupted over time yeah, absolutely <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah and this would be you know this would be the argument about the world health organization the conflicts of interest that you can see in terms of and, and the well corruption is one way term you can use um others would say conflict of interest others would use other terms but mm. you know when you have bill gates being a major source of funding for the world health organization and this is the guy who's running around telling everyone to get injected um and we have to lock down and, until the we, we've got the injection ready to put in your arm. Uh, this obviously is problematic in very significant ways. And all of that is there. It's observable and identifiable. And what we as, as researchers should then do is say, well, okay, you know, we have reasonable grounds to explore a range of explanations and hypotheses about what has been going on over the last few years. And one would be you know, failing in, in your due diligence as a researcher not to look seriously at, for example, the WEF, at the networks and the power structures it's operating within and so on, and then to start to really consider, okay, is what we have been seeing over the last two and a half years primarily a product of political and economic forces driving in a particular direction? And to me, it's, I think, as I said, I argue in the article, we're quite some way beyond the point now where I think we where we reach this this is these are reasonable questions to ask mm. i think we're now sort of in the territory where you know we want to start pulling together some of the kind of more concrete evidence and clarification of, of what's been going on yes um whilst also trying to keep up with events as they unroll before us um i, I think you're absolutely right you, but you're not looking for conspiracies are you presumably if it were possible to explain all this in terms of a cock-up then you would be happy with that you're, you're saying that we're past that time where that really could be a reasonable explanation yeah pr- pretty much and, and also you know going back to what i said at the start is that it's it's not this kind of caricature of a conspiracy that, that you're talking about a, a small mm-hmm. group of people in a room planning and controlling everything although i guess one would not rule that out entirely but what you're really mm-hmm. talking about is a, is a coalition of interests merging between a number of powerful actors at a certain point in time. Um, a lot of the people sort of in that, as it were, coalition of, or constellation of interests, you know, might be quite oblivious to sort of aspects of what is going on. Mm. You saw this with the global war on terror. A lot of people in the government structures in the West were, were completely on board with it. And then others knew that, well, we're not really invading Iraq because of Al-Qaeda, mm. etc. Mm. <laughs> um, but, but you have people caught up in the sort of ideology of what's going on on um people within big organizations become propagandized as well but you still have you still have a drive at some point in there somewhere in there in the mix you have intentionality and you have in klaus schwab's own terms for example this is a great this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to move forward on my visions for a changed uh, society etc and so that's what we're really looking at trying to explore and trying to identify and some of that involves intentionality some of it involves just you know people within organizations which are being steered in particular directions the world health organization would be one example of that which i know pandra and david bella are looking at quite closely 
you know, that seems to be the most promising route of understanding these extraordinary events we've all been living through and suffering through over the last two and a half years. Yeah, um, there's one thing that I think is a, a big barrier for people considering these kinds of arguments. You know, a lot of people would think, well, how could there be such dysfunctionality? How could there be so much corruption in the system? Surely there will be enough checks and balances. There would be the possibility of uh, whistleblowers. Um, nothing like this could be pulled off. I mean, you've mentioned this, um, but I want to just say a little bit more about this. Um, really, I want to put to you something which, again, Brett Weinstein said about you know the system in the, in the broadest sense. Um, he's talking about particularly the suppression of early treatment, and particularly you know, ivermectin, um, hydroxychloroquine, all that sort of thing, mm. and how it seems incredible that the system or everybody in the system got it wrong. It seems almost mad to say that's the case. Mm. And yet he thinks it's the case. I think it's the case. So what explains that? Um, mm. And he suggests that it is this sort of increasing privatization of knowledge. And mm. as part of that, this sort of corporate suppression of knowledge that might mm. might be a rival to what you want to do as a business, mm. and that that then feeds into the choice of appropriate people who are prepared to put truth into second position um, because their primary objective is to exist within whatever institution they're in. Um, mm. And if they speak too loudly, they will end up being deselected or they'll end up not getting the job in the first place. And if this goes on long enough and powerfully enough, you end up with structures in which there are people who just will not rock the boat. And that's the way it all functions. Um, when I put that side by side with the objection, oh, well, you know, there must be all these checks and balances. Oh, you know, there must be room for whistleblowers. Mm. It would all be blown out of the water. I think, well, maybe not, actually. You know, maybe this is a big part of the explanation. I, I think Brett's explanation is is very persuasive and appropriate. And, and going back to, as it were, kind of the way you framed the, the question, you know, the, the answer is is that yes, unfortunately, our institutions and democracies have, over time, perhaps they always were, but but in, in my experience, it's, it's worsened. But they have become profoundly corrupted by conflicts of interest and by power and money. And you see this within mainstream media. And, you know, this has been documented for decades now. And this was the area of research and analysis, which, you know, my PhD and early work came out of. But it's, it's well established that the mainstream media, the corporate media or the legacy media, whatever you want to call it, um, is very close to political power, that these uh, large conglomerates which own have overlapping interests with governments, and that the output of mainstream media is accordingly severely constrained. And the ability of a journalist within an organization to really push up against the interests of that organization are very limited. People mm. learn to self-censor. There's a right. huge literature on this. I mean, it's Herman and Chomsky's classic uh, manufacturing consent from the 80s, mm. which was really just a pulling together of uh, a large body of critical research on the mainstream media. And you have those power dynamics operating across academia as well. I was an academic for 20 years, and I'm fully aware of the combination of 
academics being cautious about what to research because they don't want to, as it were, <laughs> attract the conspiracy label or simply they don't want to attract controversy. Mm. Okay, you have those kind of pressures on one's preciously obtained titles. Yeah. And then, of course, you have funding and funding streams, which, you know, are, are very seductive. And I think in my last uh, three years when I was a chair at Sheffield, you know, the, the big thing out there was fake news, disinformation. And, of course, this was fake news, disinformation defined not in terms of mainstream media and governments, who are by far the biggest purveyors of, <laughs> of distorted information, but it was looking at social media. So you, know, you had these funding streams coming in, so let's, let's look at the social media or let's look at the Russians or the Chinese and, 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 and fake news, but not our own governments. And, you know, either consciously or subconsciously, academics are influenced by that. Um, and ultimately, that's what you just, or what Brett Meinstein described, that's mm. corruption of the system. It means that people are being incentivized to do one thing rather than another. Those who rock the boat suffer consequences and so on. And this is the reality of the world we live in. I've seen it in academia. I know about it from research in terms of the mainstream media. I've been involved with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and the whistleblower issue over the chemical attacks in Syria. You see exactly the same problems within that organization in terms of uh, conflict of interest and so on. This is very pervasive. Yeah. And, and I think for those people who say, but surely somebody would have called this out, it's simply recognizing that we have a much bigger problem than we thought we had before with <laughs> the failure of our system. And, mm. and, I, and I think COVID-19, you know, if you take the way in which our parliamentarians, look, look at how they have failed, you know, across the board mm. to question the response. Yeah. I, I mean, are you aware of any serious questions? Certainly in the opening stage, it was, it was mm. almost zero it was as though they were simply on autopilot. Um, so all of this means that the systems we have in place are, are not well-functioning. They're, they're, they're profoundly dysfunctional. And this is always the broader point I've been making over the last two years. I'm not happy to make it and, and so on. But the, our democracies and our institutions are in need of a major um, overhaul. Um, yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons why we're in this position we're in at the moment, which is, I think, a position of potentially being able to lose all remnants of democracy, is because these systems are broke. All of the, the, the whistleblower the checks and balances have all failed and mm. left us where we are today. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, that's the answer to the question. The, the, the corruption is much worse than perhaps some people have ever possibly entertained in, in their mind. It can't be as bad as that. Well, it can be. Yeah. And it probably is. Yes. yes, and the logic of that ends up with those people who do as they're told, who don't rock the boat, being called the experts. <laughs> and those who, you know, are primarily truth seekers, they're labelled the cranks or the conspiracy theorists. So even if they come out as a whistleblower, yeah, well, you know, they're saying stuff that goes against what the experts are saying, so they must be wrong. Yes. Um, and, and then they be, they're the misinformation people. And, um, and, and, and with COVID-19, the... the where there is hope with the COVID-19 event is the way in which people can learn from it in terms of the problems we have in our, and I'm talking principally about our democracies in the West, mm. the problems that we have in our institutions. Because 
you know, with COVID-19, say sort of four years ago, people who were getting smeared and, and so on were people such as myself talking about mm. the war in Syria, mm. which, mm. you know, has very low levels of attention and so on. And, and it's quite easy to smear sort of social scientists and so on. But with COVID-19, look at the, 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 the how high profile the scientists are who have been smeared. And I'm thinking of, for example, right. Sinetra Gupta, uh, Martin Kuldoff. Yeah. You know, the Great Barrington Declaration and many other scientists, Absolutely. really eminent, high profile scientists being smeared. Yes. I think Sinatra was even called a conspiracy theorist. Right. Um, and also being censored. And that should really ring for all of those people, such as the person you were talking about, who you think, well, yeah, but surely, surely the system's working okay. Well, mm. that should be enough to give pause for thought for most people that when you have people of that status, being shut down, being suppressed, that, that there's something is going very, very badly wrong. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, we're speaking, I was speaking yeah. to Paul Marek, this is in the end of uh, 2020, who's the second most published individual in his area in the world. Mm. And he was saying, I'm being called fringe because <laughs> I'm daring to use a repurposed drug. It's already out there. We know it's uh, pretty safe. And, uh, you know, I'm just, just using it for a slightly different purpose. Oh, well, now I'm fringe. And, and yet he's a very eminent person. It's incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. It, it, it is incredible. It's, it's, it's jaw-dropping. And, yes, but, it is. As I say, but at the same time, I think it has enabled many more people to wake up to the problems. And, and I noticed the numbers of people talking about propaganda, you know, sort of propaganda was always just well, with a Russian propaganda or propaganda from the First or Second World War. But many more people have been using the term propaganda to describe what governments do in the West in the last two years. Many more people, of course, as we know, have woken up to the limitations, and that's a very polite way of putting it, of mainstream hmm. stroke legacy hmm. media. I haven't read figures myself, but sort of hearing secondhand is that, you know, legacy media trust support is nosedived in the last two years. So in a way, you know, there's a lot of people waking up to these problems. And, and that gives us, I think, hope for this kind of sense of a, a broader awakening, which then translates into real substantial political social pressure to not just, you know, steer us away from this kind of dystopian future of digital IDs and injections, mm -hmm. uh, but also one that starts to enable us to reflect upon the existing problems in our society, that things are clearly not all um, in order. And, you know, we, we have institutions which are very corrupted and, you know, we, we need to reclaim our democracy. Um, I think mm -hmm. so. I, I think the kind of learning with coming out of COVID nineteen can, can help to cement or to develop that kind of ultimately what will be a, a positive, um, a positive development. And maybe I'm being slightly too optimistic, yeah. but I think it's important to be <laughs> because I, I, I don't indeed. Um, I, as, as some people, such as you know Nick Hudson at Pandata, makes this clear, this, and, and others that this idea that. Um, the dystopian future, the digitized society future, which is being presented, is is, is one which is so um, extreme that it's, it's you know they're never going to be able to implement that, mm. you know, and and people will come to resist it at some point, and so it's never going to happen. It's a political struggle, but mm. it, it's not feasible. What what they're really putting in line, it will break down and fail at some point. Um, so I hope that's right. <laughs> so that all means that there's you yeah. know there yeah. There's everything to play for, and we should be positive and optimistic whilst being 
or <laughs> making sure we get organized as well. Mm, yeah, indeed. Um, and so on. Yeah. It's being sold as progress, but after a while, I think enough people will come to realize, well, what does progress really look like? Um, we're not progressing in other areas of, of human reality. If we go down this hyper-digitalized reality that Klaus Schwab and his uh, crazy mates uh, seem to be, well, I think he's crazy as well, but <laughs> seem to be uh, fantasizing about, um, yeah, maybe there's hope that people will cotton on to this in a big way um, and, and ask the question, what does it even mean to be human? Which is a very important question. Um, you do say in the article that you are just as part of the logical landscape that is presented to us, um, there is the possibility of considering that the pandemic itself or the COVID-19 event itself was instigated. Um, so that opens the possibility not just of a lab leak, but something deliberately released for a purpose. Um, so am I right that that is logically on the table as far as you're concerned and should be continued to be investigated? Well, I, some people have argued, of course, they, they talk about leaks, they talk about intentional leaks. Mm. I, I think at the moment, and, and I'm not looking very closely at this, but I, I'm at the moment, I'm, I, I think one avenue to explore is when you say instigated, you mean, uh, or what one can mean, you've got, okay, you have a virus there, for example, which is in circulation, um, but it's not particularly novel. <laughs> It's not particularly dangerous, yeah. Um, but you then implement ways in which it can be presented as novel and as very dangerous. And of course, you know, there is a lot of controversy over the PCR tests which were developed mm. by Drosten and how they were implemented and, and how they, you know, what the, are they actually picking up. And then obviously sort of deep level scientific discussions about the virus itself, etc., and, and sure. about how novel sure. it actually mm. is. Um, whether this is just a, a normal variation and so on, something that we see and we have with flu viruses and so on. And so you could still have this idea that it's instigated because, you know, that mm. there is, um, okay, we need to um, make the most out of this. And that could be explained through the kind of structural deep event. But I suppose it could also be, and this is a little bit of the hint of this in Robert Kennedy's book, The, the Real Anthony Fauci, you got vested interests, you got pharmaceutical industries who, who mm. <laughs> see opportunities to make money and you have that kind of corruption going on. Mm. But there, there certainly seem to be very specific questions about the run-up to the COVID-19 event. I mean, it needs to be kept in mind that there was the event, was it 201, which was this planning for a pandemic in the autumn, which was, yeah, yeah. I understand, was yeah. heavily sponsored by the World Economic Forum and so on and talked about a novel yeah. coronavirus. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I was I was quite suspicious. Well, people were emailing me around <laughs> around the time and saying, well, look, there was this event. You know, this proves it's all a setup. And I was, I was saying to people that, I don't think it does. I agree it's suspicious. Um, but I've never been very comfortable coming out and saying that that proves anything at all. But when, after the discussion we've had now, looking back at things and everything that's happened over the last two and a half years, I'm more inclined to be more openly and significantly suspicious of that event than I was um, to begin with, if you see the, the, the logic of that approach. Y yes, it doesn't, as you say, it doesn't prove, but it does in, mm. in, light, in tandem with all of the other information that we have and what we've been seeing it, it mm. does become more likely yes um 
And again, coming back to this deep state, Peter Dale Scott's deep state idea, you know, the idea that you have sort of elements of the state which are operating out of the public view, whether it's the military industrial complex, as Eisenhower coined it, um, when he was stepping down as US president, whatever you want to refer to, we have these elements which are capable of that kind of uh, calculation and decision making um, and so you can have this idea that well we have a we have a crisis in the finance markets they're broken this is bubbling up now um, we have a broader question this is Keith case Vanderpile's point about loss of control across uh, Western democracies you have an increasingly questioning rebellious populations all, all of these factors go into mm. the mix. And then with the existence of these kind of deep state strata within democracy, you can see where it becomes more possible that that kind of calculation might have been going on at certain points. Yes. Um, so I, I think, you know, when you look at it in those terms, and again, I'll go back to the, to the 9-11 global war on terror. Mm. I mean, it's, it's not just that we know now they were planning in the immediate mm. aftermath of 9-11. If you go back and look at the neocon documents from the 90s, they were talking about regime change wars. <laughs> they were talking yes. about the need for catalyzing events and so on in order to get the wars going and so on. Mm. And so w- when you draw all that together, you know, you, you're on much stronger ground to say, well, okay, I think these things need to be seriously considered. And I think I think Paul Schreier, the, the German independent journalist, a multipolar editor, I mean, he has a book. I don't think it's been translated yet. And it does talk about the, um, the kind of the long-term kind of scenario gaming, which you can see going back many years, where the idea of a virus and a global-level virus and, and, and how it can be reacted to um, is very interesting to observe and to document. And, and I do think that, um, if I recall correctly, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, raises this issue in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, about the pandemic planning uh, meetings which have been going back a very long time now. And he says it's very interesting because there's always um, a member of the CIA present at these things. <laughs> So, okay. you know, and, and I, I'm oh. not sure he says that in his book or whatever he said it in one of his public talks. But, you know, OK, so this is something that one should not logically rule out. Yeah, mm. it's a possibility. You don't have to um, necessarily sign up to it as something which is, is essential mm. to get to the bottoms of the political processes that we see around us. But, you know, from a historical point of view, I think. Yeah, you know, it would be foolish to, um, well, not just foolish. It would be irrational to erase that from the kind of research agenda. Sure, that these are possible. These are possibilities which need exploring. And if it is the case that you've got some level of planning going on, as as we had with mm. you know relation to the global war on terror, which is beneath the radar at the moment. Um, if, if we can get a handle on understanding that, that's extremely important because it will, you know, helps us mm. to understand much better the situation that we're in. And in a way, what we're up against as, as publics and as populations against, you know, it's as we started off, it's, it's, it's probably not politicians just getting terribly confused and scientists <laughs> getting terribly confused and messing things up. But it's not that that we have to have to deal with, which is a relatively easy thing to, to deal with. Yes, We've got something yes. which is much bigger and deeper and um, um, requires more concerted mm. response and resistance to in order to stop it. So, in, in, indeed. Um, very important indeed. to explore. I mean, 
Sure, absolutely. So when you're looking at these uh, individuals, these scientists and the like, and saying, well, is it cock up? Are they being dysfunctional, etc.? But then you look at somebody like Anthony Fauci, who, of course, is off the title of the Kennedy book you just mentioned. You're looking at somebody there who offshores gain-of-function research and then is um, sort of behind the suppression of treatment. Uh, you think this uh, this is remarkably joined up, and there are certain individuals who you see that joined upness happening, which does pose more questions of the, of the kind we've been exploring here. I'm trying to be careful about what I say there. Um, I, I, no, I, sometimes <laughs> the way I put this to people who who are very nervous about talking in in, in, in this kind of area, I hmm. say, well, you know, if you're a police officer and you're <laughs> investigating. <laughs> You know, th- these are the kind of things that you would um, investigate. So if you've got this kind of problem that you have in, in the regulatory bodies in America and you've got Fauci and, and you've got this kind of revolving door, you've got the pharma in- industry having this kind of penetration of the regulatory boards. Hmm. Uh, these are all things which are perfectly reasonable to investigate. Just as a police officer who's investigating a crime or something that has happened would uh, want to go through sort of things which you know you're not 100% sure of but but this looks as though yes. there is a possibility here this is all reasonable uh, mm. rational process to go through um, and a necessary one and unless we're going to work with the assumption and I think you raised this at the start of the interview that our leaders our people in positions of power they're good people they do the right thing, and, and we really shouldn't question them at all. Unless you're going to assume that, then you know, per- it's perfectly reasonable to ask tough questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I, I don't think, you know, to be objective about this, I don't think that the history of politics and societies shows that, that people in powerful positions are to be given that kind of benefit of doubt. No, no, <laughs> no. And especially when they say, well, they imply that they are the embodiment of science, as was the case with this, this particular individual, makes you think, well, why, why are you saying that? Are you, are you trying to make it impossible to criticise you? Because that would be conflated with criticism <laughs> of science itself. Yeah, a very suspicious individual <laughs> indeed. Very suspicious. And uh, as, mm. we, as we know now from those leaked emails, when the Great Barrington Declaration was mm. released. Uh, you know, their response was in an email conversation was Fauci was we, we've got to take this down. We've we've got to sort of essentially they were saying we need a smear campaign. <laughs> so their response was not the response of scientists saying, oh, this is interesting. Somebody's disagreeing with us, let's have a small <laughs> conference and, yeah. and dis- debate the issues. They're yes. effectively, you know, giving the green light to a smear campaign to get um, you know Poor quality journalists to write hit pieces, which is exactly what happened, of course. Mm, mm. <laughs> this is not conduct which should encourage us to trust these people. It's conduct which should encourage us to actually ask very difficult questions of them. Yes, yes. And in the process of asking these difficult questions, more and more avenues of research come to light, don't they? I mean, I just happened upon something whilst you know, considering this area, um, it sort of jumped out at me, a conversation again, I think it was the same conversation between Brett Weinstein and Geert van den Bosch. And this really jumped out at me because they were talking in terms of the COVID-19 event and the vaccination program, the injection program, as being a huge gain of function experiment. And I thought that's a remarkable thing to say. You know, whereas in the lab, you would do this sort of serial passage uh, to you know, subject the virus to various selective pressures so that it would evolve to become, you know, more virulent or whatever. So here, um, and I think Bosch has said this consistently, you know, if you're administering these injections in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, you are effectively forcing the virus through 
mm. a global population-wide serial passage experiment where the, the virus is going to find significant ways to evolve around immune responses, etc., mm. uh, and, and gain new functions. And yet he will also talk about this as being something that should be known. Yeah. Almost, almost vaccinology 101, if you like. And I'm thinking to myself, if, if this should be known, does that not point in the direction of other agendas, of trying to prolong things, you know? Um, well, it, it, I don't know, but I think it's on the table. <laughs> well, it, it, it points in the direction, mm. yes, uh, in, in, in the sense that w- when you have sort of all the, the 101s being ignored, and, and this is an argument which, of course, is made about lockdown, that this is completely out of step with um, standard responses to viruses. And locking down populations, you know, will cause huge collateral damage, which is exactly what happened. So you don't do it. So when you have all of those things being ignored, it, you know, mm. again, being objective about it, um, it raise, increases the chances mm. that you have something else going on. Um, that you have other pressures being brought to bear, and that might be corruption, vested interests, or it might be political projects seeking to exploit circumstances. It might be the the murky deep state actors, as we've discussed, as exploiting a, a structural deep event and so on. Um, but those questions, they, they simply become more likely because they're very difficult, as you say, to explain. How is it that people who are ignoring all of their training and to be honest, I mean, you know, I, I'm fairly careful in talking about the science-related issues because sure. I'm not a sure. scientist. So I, no, no, um, I go by by what I read and what I'm informed of. So, same here, and I was saying, you know, as Bosch has been saying, not I'm not saying it. <laughs> That's his opinion, you know. But, but it, 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 it's, uh, all I what I can say is I, I'm thoroughly unpersuaded by. <laughs> Um, the, the scientists who've been pushing the COVID narrative um, and the scientists who've been questioning what's going on are, are much more persuasive just in terms of logic and analysis. Um, and just even the simplest things of, you know, well, if you know, lockdown, this is away from the science in, in a way. You, you lock down populations, obviously you will cause huge amounts of collateral damage. Mm. Um, so you, where's the cost-benefit calculation? Mm. Mm. And my understanding now, and I've, I've listened to a few people who, who were involved in some of these processes, there was no cost-benefit calculation. Right, right. So, mm-hmm. so you left. How is it possible? Well, that's you either admitting complete stupidity and incompetence, or um, you're admitting you turned a blind eye. So, why did you turn a blind eye? Absolutely. And Absolutely. if you're turning a blind eye, what pressures are leading you to turn yes. a blind eye? Yes. So, all, all exactly. Objectively, yes, right is partic- a chance that you've got something else going on. Absolutely. Um, and this, right from the early months of this event, I was constantly thinking to myself, certainly when it came to the suppression of treatments, why are governments going along with this? Why are they bearing this enormous economic cost? You know, I spent my whole life seeing governments try to avoid costs, you know, depending upon their political point of view, but not unnecessary costs. And this, why would they accept this narrative that there's no other way out of this at vast cost? There must be something else. There must be another, an X factor behind this that is driving this seemingly irrational global policy. Yes. And, and this is one of the things we've been trying to do, Pandren, is, is, is to try to bring in sort of the, the economic analysis. Because there is this, these claims out there about, as, as I said at the start of the interview, about the crisis in the finance markets and mm. the general state of the finance markets in relation to the real economy. 
And so you've got potentially some very powerful economic forces at work there, which might explain the kind of, as it were, incentivization of politicians mm. to go into lockdown, for example. I mean, one argument that I've heard put forward by some experts is that you know, locking down was you know, they, they had to flood huge amounts of, of imaginary money into the finance <laughs> markets to float them, and locking down was a necessary response to avoid the economy overheating and, and inflation, uh, which, of course, we have now, but taking uh, the, the beginning of the COVID-19 event. Mm. And so there are some sort of, you know, economic-based explanations okay. and rationales for what we've been seeing. Okay. It's, it's amazingly difficult to get economists tied down on this. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, but but we're, we're working on it. But, you know, th- that is clearly uh, an area which needs to be looked at. And so when you raise this question, why would a government do this? Well, maybe, yes, yes there's yes. something else going on. There's, something, there's a crisis in the economy. And, again, as I'm not an economist, but I can, I can understand what is explained to me by economists. I can see in those I'm sure you're the same, that, that we have significant problems with the financial sector, with the way in which our economies are functioning. Um, and it doesn't seem that it's particularly tenable for it to carry on as things are forever. And I mean, this does go back to the 2008 crisis. And of course, it brings into mm. broader issues over the way in which our economies have been functioning and the creation of bubbles and so on, which are unsustainable. Mm. And I mean, I forget the figures, but the, 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 the amount of cre- money creation that has gone on in the last few years is, is, is of epic proportions. And of course, it's money <laughs> which is not really detached from any real economy. Um, and so I think even for the layperson, one can see this doesn't look very functional. And, and then again, that starts to fit into under, being able to potentially start to understand what actually has been going on. As you say, why are governments doing this, which seems to be at a huge cost? Well, hmm. it's really because that's, you know, there are other things going on here, um, and which makes their actions actually not illogical, but rational from the point of view of what they're trying to achieve. That certainly needs to be explained. And I hope you can pin down some economists who will make that clear. And this is something that <laughs> that has actually become quite clear through the conversation is that um, so much of this needs explaining and requires specialist knowledge in all kinds of areas. So in a sense, you're, I suppose you are calling for a multidisciplinary approach to this. Um, is it right that Panda is set up for that reason? Uh, well, I, I think I, I've only been involved with Panda in the last six months. I, I think originally it okay, was right. set up um, because you know, people such as Nick and, and I was involved were, were strong on the analysis of the statistics and, and were convinced that very clearly that a lot of things were being claimed which didn't make any sense about the virus and so on and about lockdowns, etc. Okay. Mm. Um, and so it was a response to what seemed to be, well, this is, this is clearly an aberrant response to a, a virus, etc., but where things have sort of evolved, I think many organizations who've been raising questions have now become cognizant of the fact that this isn't really a public health crisis we're dealing with. There's something else going on. So that has meant that Panda and I think other organizations as well have started to look more seriously at the question of, OK, well, what are the political, sociological, economic aspects of COVID-19. We need to understand what they are. So that's what Panda is is, is moving towards trying to do, and it's trying to um, identify researchers who can help in that. But as you said, this is is a genuinely sort of interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary Mm. project, and it's a huge one as well. Mm. But COVID-19, for people from the younger generation, I'm assuming you're maybe perhaps roughly the same age as I am, Uh, um, 
for people from the, much younger people sort of you know need to be told that what we're going through is an unprecedented this is incredible mm. Uh, event of, of of huge scale and we've seen nothing like it since the second world war before and those were sort of fairly well understood events etc so we have major we have this kind of major processes going on and this does require it's going to require a huge amount of um both as it were political resistance i think to where we're being driven mm. towards but also a huge amount of intellectual effort to try to start to unpack and to understand what is going on to understand the drivers of change and you know from a, a social science point of view this is an essential task but a lot of people are too scared to do it but this is something which really does need to be done and i think this is you know this is reflected in the movement that pat ward not not the, mm. the movement mm. in terms of change but the development of um attempting to look very seriously at covid19 not as a public health crisis other far more important dimensions of of this which help explain what is going on and that we need to get to the bottom of them yes and so on and and that's what we're trying to do and i, I, and I hope in yeah. time other organizations will also try to do mm. because we're we're looking at a huge process requires a lot of input intellectual to to understand what's going on but also what we're live going through you know we as i've warned about in other interviews that all the warning signs are there that we we could if we don't push back we could lose democracy and when i say lose democracy i mean we just move into an authoritarian system absolutely <laughs> that's on the card yeah. yes <laughs> even lose the theater <laughs> yeah you know it has to be said that some level of theater is still important isn't it like, democracy has to be seen to be there sure. and that puts brakes on things it's not perfect it's a long way from perfect but we we need to keep what we have we you know i'm always whenever i sort of make this point people say well we, we never had democracy and well yes <laughs> i i understand however however things are getting measurably worse at a rapid rate yes and Absolutely. you know censorship is is one of the early warning signs right because as soon as you start right. censoring people then you're corrupting the public sphere and you're closing down debate and so on mm. but you know it is in, it is entirely realistic and it would be naive to think otherwise that one possible future for us mm. and our children mm. and so on is one where we don't have democracy. Yep. You have essentially a high level of centralization of control. We have digital currencies, which are programmable. Yeah. Uh, we have control over what we can say. Um, and the idea that sort of, you know, however limited, but the idea that, that our, our precious democracies, you know, can simply never be erased is, is <laughs> not a logical one. No. You can lose these systems, can move back again into authoritarian or much worse. And, and, I, and I, I'm not averse to people who use the term totalitarianism or, yes. you know, some of these more hard, hard formed terms to describe what's going on. Because, yeah. you know, we, we have some pretty scary um, aspects, what we're seeing here in Germany, where I, where I'm, I live, we you know the right. constant push towards segregation of populations, the language used by politicians Incredible. rings alarm bells yes. for many in the German population mm. and certainly many people such as myself from, you know, from that community here um, that, you know, been here before in history. Yeah, it's astonishing. <laughs> so yes. On, so. yes. The word technocracy is the one that I tend to 
yeah. connect with because I've spoken to Pat Wood so many times. I think he's actually a very important individual and his organization because he, he not only looks in, in depth at things, but he also has this ability to reach a mass audience. And one of the things I think about the great things that you and people like you are doing is that can it tend to be rather ivory tower? I mean, you've got to do that. You've got to, you've got to have that space to look in depth, but you've also got to speak to just everybody um, in order to have this mass resistance. Um, so as the analysis is ongoing, what structures are going to be put in place to reach as many people as possible? Well, I, I think me, I, I'm in, I, I am involved in too many. I'm always involved in too many things. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. just juggling lots, yeah. of, lots of balls. But, but everything okay. that I'm doing really does try to recognize it's important to do objective rigorous analysis and also to have some space to do that you know so you're sort of out of the kind of any kind of limelight so it's important to have spaces to do that um, but it's also equally important that, that, that when you start to uh, establish confidence in a particular set of claims do you then communicate that out and of course this is what universities are supposed to do <laughs> but of course yes. universities have got the same problems that legacy media have so that they're pretty dysfunctional um so we need to create new spaces panda is one space where that can be done where you have people who with expertise and knowledge can be given the, the, the tools and the resources to, to do research mm. and then panda itself as an organization has you know is connected with other organizations who are been questioned the COVID-19 narrative and has the ability to communicate to a wider public. It's, you know, as Nick Hudson is a very high profile sort of head, as it were, of Panda. And so it's an organization which can, and can, as it were, do the job that universities are supposed to be doing. Yes. But I think it's always important to balance this is, you know, you, you need the obje objective rigorous research and you need to allow people to get on and do that work. And it is time consuming. Mm, um, absolutely. You then have yeah. to make sure that you're then communicating that effectively out to a wider audience. And I think Panda does that extremely well and, okay. and it has a lot of potential in that sense. Um, and certainly on the COVID-19 issue to, to really start to help people and other organizations understand that, um, yeah, you're probably already suspecting this by now, but yes, it's not just a public health crisis we're dealing with. <laughs> there are other things going on. Yes, yes. And so you can help inform those other groups. And I mean, there, there is a broader issue of political opposition resistance i mean mm. I, I mean i'm not involved in, in in that directly but it's very clear to me that uh people who are trying to find meaningful ways of pushing back against this getting beyond the left right divisions that we have mm. recognizing mm. the kind of concentration of power that we now have in our system which is very unhealthy that these people need good information and, mm. and what exactly. research can, can 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 provide that to them and so on yes um not just information but but also very rigorous patterns of thought yeah you know because a lot of this information is out there, but it does need people such as yourself to put it together in a really coherent way to philosophize upon it so that it is rigorous. It, you know, it's, it's not easy to pick apart. I think that's very, very important, which is one of the reasons why I so much enjoy what, what you wrote. Yes, it's the sense-making, isn't it? So you've yes. got to make sense of this large amount of information yes. and so on, and that's very important to do. Um, I mean, I, I do, and I have said for a long time now that it's clear now that my, my, my guess or my guesstimate is that, you know, we're not going to 
be the situation will not be resolved by anybody in the existing power structure rescuing the day. This will require some kind of you know widespread public awareness and pushback. I think so, and that will probably have to be organised at some point. I do think that's already happening. Mm. I mean, we already clearly have large sections of the population across the West who who've realized the things that you and I realize. Um, and there are, I think, the beginnings of um, emerging political actors' resistance to what's going on, quite where this is going to go. It's, it's very unclear at the moment. Sure. Um, but I, I, I did, I, I just caught now, remember the names, it was Jimmy Dore <laughs> and Russell Brand and uh, Tucker Carlson from Fox News. And, and it was Russell Brand talking about Jimmy Dore going on Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson, of course, is, is associated with the right in America. Jimmy <laughs> Dore is associated with the left. Russell Brand right. is obviously UK, but I think he's US-based. I'm not sure, but he's UK, but, but associated with the left. Yeah. But the, you know, the, the, they were all saying the same thing, mm. that, that we need to come together across left and right. The problem we have is concentration of power. The problem is the oligarchy. Mm. And, mm. and and I thought, well, that's, you know, they have huge audiences. Russell Brand has a huge audience, yes. for sure. Yes. Tucker Carlson has a huge audience. Is this the beginning signs of this kind of a broad-based awareness that, you know, we have very big problems in our democracies? Mm. It is beyond left-right. We do need to find a way of understanding the big problem we have is concentration of power and that we perhaps have shared interests between people who see themselves as on the left or the right of the political spectrum. And I thought, well, you know, that there, there, there is hope there. And I know there talking is. about there a is. couple of comedians and a and yeah. uh, hmm. well, Tucker Carlson's obviously high profile, but 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 Fox News. Hmm. But these people have extensive influence. I mean, Russell Brand has absolutely huge even to the extent of you know probably giving a CNN a run for its money, <laughs> um, so so that's yeah. signs of hope, and, and I think that kind of crystallization of uh, mm. sort of attitudes and views, recognition of what's going on, and they all, all of those three actors in their own way question aspects of COVID nineteen, not as far as I, you or I would, mm. but they do raise important questions. So I think that's a sign of where we're going. And and I, and I hope in time it will crystallise into a, a positive political mm. movement response, which takes us in the West into the latter part of the twenty first century, in a way ah, where yes. you know, we can ah. all be more positive about our future and our children's future and so on. Sure, sure. Time, absolutely crucial. There you're talking about quite a lot of time. You're talking about decades there. Um, and one thing that I do think is of this quote by Yuval Noah Harari, um, mates with uh, the crazy uh, Klaus Schwab. Um, and he talks about, you know, in, in future, it's going to be impossible for us to organize because we will be so digitally unified with the uh, technocratic Borg that it will just be impossible for us to do that. Um, I, I don't completely take seriously what he says, but um, the very fact that he's thinking in such a way makes me think this is quite a short time window, really. You know, if, if this is allowed to become concretized in our lifetime, this technocratic digital control grid, whatever we want to call it. Mm. I take seriously, not, not the details of what he says, but the danger in principle of what he says, that it might become increasingly hard to organize. So I think what you're saying, I, I'm, I hope it's before the latter part of the 21st century. That's all I'm saying. For, for sure, the time to organize is now. And yes, um, yes. As, as my colleague, Mark, Professor Mark Crispin Miller sort of made the point 
slightly polemically, you know, we, we, his view is that we have fascism staring us in the face at the moment. Yes, interesting. Um, and 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 really, this is the time at which people need to to wake up to that mm. and to, to organise. Mm. Otherwise, this dreadful future of. I mean, there are many aspects of this, obviously, and and there's some cultural aspects, and the, the transhumanism issue comes into mm. this as well. Um, but but this is these are visions for the future which are being promoted by a very narrow group of people in our society, and they're being promoted without any debate or discussion with publics. No. Um, and so I think people need to become aware of that, become aware of the dangers, and then to voice their resistance because if you know, they, they must realize that you know they, they, they we have a short window of opportunity but so do they they have a short window of opportunity to try to push this through and yes. the point at which they have got everybody on the grid well you know that would make resistance much harder but resistance would undoubtedly continue um i'm happy to i confidently assert yeah. that the people will people who's belief in humanity or belief in their mm. God or whatever sure. belief system they have mm. um, sure. will fight back against that in one way or another. Yes. The thing is, at the moment, we have an opportunity to resist it and to do it without too much pain. If we move into ever, if we lose democracy entirely and we're into some kind of authoritarian control system, then resistance becomes much, much harder mm. and much more painful for people. But it will continue. Yes, um, yes. So I, I talk about it in those terms. Now, uh, time to act now is going to be a hell of a lot harder. Yes, I, I agree with you. And so, so when I was uh, talking about what uh, Yuval Harari says, you know, it was that business of you know everybody's going to be hooked up with implants in their brains and all that sort of thing. And yes, I agree. There's going to be so much resistance getting to that point that I think his dire prediction about the impossibility of organizing against that is um, unrealistic. Um, unless, of course, there is no resistance on the way. But I agree with you. I think there will be. But that needs to happen. And we need to work at that. And I think your article is extremely important in you know, helping to initiate a real understanding of what has happened and pointing out that it is essential to act now, um, you know, that you are speaking to fellow academics, you're speaking to journalists, you're speaking to ordinary people as well, you know, so ordinary, you know, um, people who don't have those titles who are nevertheless involved in researching and trying to understand what's happened. Now is the time to do it and we should not be cowed. It would be inappropriate to call any of us involved in that conspiracy theorist. The time is past for that. Um, we have enough warrant now, as I put it, um, to take this really seriously and we must do it. So I thank you ever so much for writing that article and articles like it. I shall put both of those that I've mentioned uh, in the show notes today. And I thank you ever so much, Dr. Robinson, for coming on the show to discuss all these things. It's very, very good of you for carving out this time for us. Thanks very much. It was good talking to you. Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakov. Attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Dr. Piers Robinson. And I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.